turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and we'll be looking at just three verses during our brief time today, verses 44, 45, and 46. Um, one thing you may have guessed about me, but and would be right, but may not know about me, is that I love to read. Um, and I love to read in different ways at different times. Uh, during the semesters and during the daytimes, I read for work, which I absolutely love that it's part of my job to have to read. Um, I read parts of books. I read a lot of research papers. Right now, I have several PhD students trying to make the February 15th, 2022 deadline for May graduation. And so I'm reading mountains of dissertation chapters. I read weekly reports. I read scores and scores of articles. In the evenings and in the weekends, though, I'm still reading, but I read for fun. That's when I read literature, I read fiction, I read poetry, but it's on the breaks the winter breaks and the summer breaks and the spring breaks that I read to discover. I intentionally try to find new things. In this winter break, I went to the public library, one of the best places you can go, to discover new things and came back with books, three books actually, on the history of a handful of different art museums. And you may say, well, are you having trouble going to sleep? Is that why you're getting those to read them? But actually, I I'm a bit odd, as my family reminds me, and um, I discovered in the library a book on the history of the Louvre Museum in Paris, a museum to which I've never been, but now have read a lot about, a whole book on its history. And the Louvre is known for its most famous painting, Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. And pre-COVID, millions and millions of people would go to that museum all the time just to see that one painting. In fact, many of you have probably been there and stood in the line to see something that is far smaller and far less remarkable than you thought it would be, to see it in person. But the treasures of the Louvre extend many times over beyond just that one painting. And how they were collected is actually a fascinating story, more fascinating than you might think. In the 1800s, two middle-class, ordinary people, collectors, spent their entire lives while they worked other jobs, shopping flea markets and junk dealers, acquiring what they loved, oftentimes at very inexpensive prices. And as they neared retirement, they realized that the, the paintings that they had collected were of such significance that they donated them to the Louvre, free. And today, in the 21st century, they comprise some of the most well-regarded and priceless collections of art in the world. And it came to the museum at no cost to them at all. These humble middle-class collectors, not wealthy aristocrats, not elite artists, over the course of a lifetime, amassed a priceless treasure simply by seeking day in and day out that in which they found joy. Reading this book led me to thinking and really to thinking about the text for today and asking what is it that I treasure and enjoy to the point that I would see my work and the purpose of my life as a means to collect it for a lifetime. So to put it to you another way, a very simple way, why are you here? Why are you here? 
I mean, why do you sit in these chairs on this day at this hour? I mean that. I mean, why have you gathered at this school to study for this degree in the hopes of doing something else? What brought you here and why are you here? What is the purpose of you being here? I realize that that question is an uncomfortable one, especially for college students, because they get it all the time. In fact, many of you are coming back from winter break, glad not longer anymore to answer that question and to come back here where everyone is back in the same boat. It's the question many college students dread because it gets more complicated. It's, well, I I know I'm supposed to be here, but what I'm going to do after that? Well, I have to get this degree first and then go on further. It's even more difficult question for those of you in graduate school because you've already had the college experience, you've already got the college degree, and you've signed up for another degree that many of your extended family and in-laws and friends are wondering, why? Why are you doing that? Why are you here? And it's hard, too, because those same friends are now out in the marketplace making more money and probably will make more money than you through the course of their life because they started early. Well, if you hate that question, why are you here, and you don't even know exactly how to answer it, don't be discouraged. Figuring out why you are here likely is the very reason you are here. And the truth is, no one truly knows exactly why they are here until they leave. You can say you know why you're here, but you don't really know what God has for you until you finish with the faithfulness with what God's given you now. Yet, I ask it of you because I think that's the question the text here asks us today. So think about that as we go forward. Why are you here? Today, we look at two of Jesus's kingdom parables found in Matthew 13, 44 through 36. And it's a message I've titled, Something Greater Than Solomon Is Here. Something Greater Than Solomon Is Here. And I was helped to find this title in a wonderful book by our own Patrick Schreiner on Matthew's Gospel. And it comes from an earlier passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, where Matthew is pointing out that Jesus is wiser than Solomon. Something greater than Solomon's here. And that divine wisdom is on display here in this text. So one of the things I like to do, because I like to read, is that you'll hear me reference and recommend several books as we go along. I've already mentioned the book on the history of the Louvre, which four of you may be interested in. But Patrick Schreiner's Matthew, Disciple, and Scribe is a book you should get from the bookstore and have and look at. And it's no better time than to read through it this semester as we're looking at the parables. So to carve out our time, we'll look first at what I call the prologue to this passage, which is simply the whole chapter, Matthew 13, in context and what's happening here. Then we'll look at the parables, these two brief parables themselves, and then quickly draw from that several principles that get at to this overarching question of why are we here. There's so much here to discover um, that we won't be able to get to it all, but we'll do our very best. So first, the prologue, the context of Matthew 13, the context of Matthew 13. Matthew 13 contains seven parables, often labeled the parables of the kingdom, and interspersed in this chapter is an explanation of the purpose of the parables, as well as even a further explanation, a commentary on how to understand some of the parables. But as Dr. Schreiner argues, it's also clear here, and we shouldn't miss this, that Matthew also means not only to put the spotlight on the parables, the words of Jesus, God's word, but on Jesus himself, 
not just his parables. What we see in this passage and in Jesus delivering the parables is that Jesus the king is showing us how he is a teacher of wisdom. That he is continuing from the kings of the Old Testament and the prophets of the Old Testament, dispensing wisdom in a way that a king would, much like David and much like Solomon. We can see this by where Matthew even puts chapter 13. It's right in the middle of the book, in the center of the book. And he references an allusion to Psalm 78.2 in the center of that chapter, showing that Jesus fulfills that verse, I will open my mouth in parables to do what? To reveal what is hidden since the foundation of the world. This revealing or giving understanding is a mark of wisdom. We see this all throughout the Proverbs. That is what Jesus is doing. He's dispensing wisdom. He's revealing secrets. He's helping us to understand. He is a teacher of wisdom. Further, we see in chapter 13 that it contains several short, pithy statements of Jesus. And this type of teaching of dispensing these parables and small, compact phrases is a pattern of the traditional wisdom teacher. It's the way in which scribes would reveal their wisdom and their secrets. And Jesus is aligning himself with that, showing us the spotlight shining on Jesus and saying that he is a wisdom teacher. He is continuing from the kings of the Old Testament. So before we even get to examine these parables, which we'll do here now, it's important to see something greater. Matthew is underscoring that Jesus is the wise king. First Colossians 2.3 reminds us, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of what? Wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, all the treasures of wisdom is knowledge and knowledge. So the parables. We're studying the parables this semester. You'll hear, you've heard two messages. You'll hear several more. So as you've heard and we'll hear again, the parables simply mean words of wisdom to cast alongside Jesus' teaching usually to make a single point. And that's an important thing to understand is that there is complexity in the parables, but it's not as complex as we tend often to make it. And furthermore, it's not as simple as oftentimes we seem to make it. These are not mere moral teachings, but rather they are elements of usually a single truth to cast alongside Jesus's teaching. Sometimes in history, they've been diminished as these mere moral lessons, and other times they've been embellished as allegories to something we have to get in and dissect and parse, but that's not how we're supposed to read them. We're supposed to read them as a simply making a single point coming alongside the essentials of Jesus's teaching. Another great book is a book by our own uh, Jared Wilson, The Storytelling God, and that is a book you should get as well. He, as he often does in his book, you can tell when you prepare a message and you read the commentaries and you look at the original text and you see what all the scholars are saying, and then you try to distill it down for yourself. And then you read Jared, and you realize, oh, well, he's already done this in a much more clearer, more um, beautiful way than I could. Um, all his books are like that. The storytelling God is no exception. He says, the parables don't just tell us about the true ways of life, but they shine into darkened hearts the way, the truth, and the life. These parables essentially show us what it means to say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The parables display what that looks like, is their purpose. Jesus explains also in the middle of this chapter in verse 12 that there is a stewardship principle in play with the parables. Much like we heard last week in Dr. Allen's message, there is a sense in which 
we are being given and the disciples are being given and now we are being given the parables and they are entrusted to us to do something with them. Those who have a commitment to following Jesus have a greater understanding of the parables and those who have a greater understanding, more understanding will be given to them. But in that entrusting, there's a warning too. That knowledge entrusted can slip away, can deteriorate if it's not cared for, if it's not curated. And this is a true principle with all spiritual knowledge. It can dwindle. And that is the burden of stewardship. And the reason why I mention that is that is especially true for all of us sitting in this room, those of us who are pursuing a, some sort of formal education, and especially Christian education or theological education, and even more so here in the United States. What you have by virtue of being in this room is a gift and a blessing that you're able to complete a degree when there are pastors and church workers and believers around the world who will never have in their entire lifetimes an ounce of the education you're receiving. That shouldn't make you feel bad, but it should make you realize that I'm a steward of this gift. It's a privilege to be able to receive what I'm giving, and I need to cultivate it and make the most of it. It's an investment in my own spiritual understanding. If you don't guard it and protect it and build upon it, it will dwindle. It will fade. The longer you live, you'll see this principle play out among your friends. I can look back now easily to several people I went to college with and even to seminary with who, who have to this day squandered what they've received. They're still followers of Christ. I'm not saying at all that anyone's lost their salvation, but they haven't cultivated what they've received and they've, they've drifted. They've regressed to infancy in Christ. They're spiritually weak. They're making terrible choices. We need to guard what we've been given and trust with what we've been entrusted, cultivate it, invest it, and more understanding will be given to you. That said, the parables are not some sort of Gnostic knowledge that only a few gain. The meaning of them can be found and understood. It's not like we're having to, to use some Rubik's Cube to decode them or something like this. It's an important point to understand, especially during this time when you're gaining so much new knowledge. That what you're gaining is something you're entrusting and you're building upon, you've had the privilege of focusing on it, and it can be squandered. But it's not necessarily unique to you. If those pastors and church workers around the world were able to be here and to study, they could gain that knowledge too. It doesn't necessarily make us more special that we're getting it or what we're doing it. And this is important to understand is that while you're gaining this knowledge, these simple truths can still be communicated and understood. Everyone reflects back on their earliest days of preaching, usually with some measure of embarrassment. And I'm thankful that my earliest days of preaching were long before the digitization of everything and the recording of everything. And I can remember preaching out in churches and rural churches and in various places where there are just regular people. And what a blessing it is actually to be a regular person that you don't know necessarily about all the theological controversies and you're not reading about this or that or you're not following this evangelical and what he or she is saying to that evangelical. And as I was preaching out in those churches, I would you know, do my best. I was you know, not trying to, to, to mislead or to misguide, but I would hear people come up and instead of remarking on the text or on the God about whom I was preaching, they would say something like, wow, I, I would have to do a lot of reading to understand all that you understand about that text which is really a nice way of saying what you said just went way, way over 
over my head. I, I know it was important, and I can't understand that I'm not as smart as you are. I didn't go to school like you did. And if that's the response we have to our preaching or teaching, we're doing it wrong. We're not communicating in a way that it is meant to be understood. We're given these tools, we've been entrusted with this knowledge to be able to communicate in a way that everyone can understand. These parables in Matthew 13 are grouped together, and verse 53 of this chapter indicates that Jesus gave them together. He meant for them to go together. And of the seven that are here, four are found only in Matthew, and at least six of them start with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. So let's look at them here, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus begins with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. And immediately the way he's describing the kingdom of heaven is foreign to what those who read the Old Testament thought the kingdom of heaven would be. The Jewish people expected the kingdom to come, but to come at once and to destroy all of God's enemy and establish a new world peace for God's people. And this is not the kingdom that is at hand. This is not the kingdom that Jesus brought. These parables, Jesus is using them to cast alongside to reveal something different, something smaller something invisible, something more long-term. These parables reveal a kingdom started or a kingdom inaugurated in small and invisible ways. And they will continue until their ultimate fulfillment. The parables show that the kingdom is mysterious. And so that's why Jesus is talking about them. The kingdom of heaven is like this. So often we talk about the kingdom because of this idea, this this mystery of it starting, but not finishing. And one day, so it's incomplete, but one day it will be complete. We talk in terms of it happening already in the time of Christ. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom, but we look forward to the fact that even today, the kingdom is not yet. Jesus is showing that he is the king and he is inaugurating a kingdom His miracles and his teachings throughout his earthly life display that clearly that the kingdom has arrived. There is no one like him. Someone greater than Solomon is here. No one like him. He is the king. But it is also not yet. It has not come with final power. It has not come to destroy all of God's enemies. It has not come in such a way that he is ruling completely. So the kingdom of heaven is not quite something we can just grab on and drive (laughs) It is something a little more elusive. It's already, and it's not yet, and these parables help us to understand that. The kingdom of heaven, these parables say, is is like a treasure or is like a pearl. And in the age in which this is taking place before banking systems or other digital investment opportunities that we might have today, if someone went on a journey or off to war, they would often bury their valuables for safekeeping, oftentimes in a field they owned or sometimes out in the wilderness where nobody owned that field. We saw an example of this last week in the passage Dr. Allen preached, that someone received something and what did he do? He buried it. That was often a common way to sort of keep it safe. 
is to bury it somewhere. And if that person died out in war or out on his journey, then often the treasure was lost until someone came along and, and found it. So the action here of buying the land was a fail-safe way of ensuring that one can obtain the treasure outright with any dispute. Or the action of buying the pearl was a way of saying, just make no mistake about it, this is mine. We're not going to dispute whose it is and who's not. I'm going to purchase all of it. So the selling and buying that happens in these parables, we see both men selling and buying. And it reveals simply, very simply, that these treasures, the treasure or the pearl that they found, either by seemingly accident or by constantly curating and cultivating, seeking to find that great pearl, are priceless and of supreme value. We know that because they did what? They sold everything they had to go and to buy them. And we see this principle, which again is simple and we can understand it. We've even perhaps experienced something like it in our own lives at different times. We see it lived out several places in the Bible. The Apostle Paul did this. In Philippians chapter 3, he talks about how he had everything the earth could offer. He had lineage. He had education. He had ambition. He even had his own righteousness, his faithfulness to the law. Yet after meeting Christ on the Damascus road, he came to see that Jesus was priceless. Jesus was of surpassing worth. And that Jesus' righteousness through faith, not his ambition, not his achievement, not his education, not his pedigree, is what gives knowledge of eternal life and God. And Paul says it's worth everything to have that. Everything else is basically rubbish compared to that. Have you come to this place in your own life to where you've seen and tasted Christ's righteousness as far surpassing worth than everything else? The world comes along and offers you everything, but this world has really nothing for you compared to that. Christ's righteousness, Christ in his kingdom is the greatest treasure. It is the pearl of great price. Yet in the first parable, we see even a motive for why he's doing this. We see some inkling of emotion for why the man is willing to sell everything and to purchase it. Clearly, it's of great value, but he doesn't feel indifferent about it. It says, in his joy, the man sold everything out of joy. C.S. Lewis talks about the innate need and longing every human has for divine joy. He calls it our inconsolable secret. This is in The Weight of Glory. Our inconsolable secret. Have you been around a baby or a child or perhaps even a pet that was inconsolable. There was nothing you could do, nothing you could give them. Uh, there was nothing you could bring them that would take away whatever was bothering them. They are inconsolable. Perhaps if you can't think about that, if you're a Chiefs fan, you know literally the meaning of inconsolable. <laughs> uh, there's, there's nothing we can do to bring back uh, Sunday. Lewis calls the need for divine joy our inconsolable secret. It's a longing we have. Every human being has it. It's something, he says, that hurts so much that we look for other names to call it. And throughout history, we have often called it nostalgia or romanticism. A whole movement in history chasing after something, this, this longing, this hunger we have for divine joy. We might say in our own days that we are pursuing a bucket list or that we are a fan of something, seeking to satisfy this hunger we have. 
this inconsolable secret. But Lewis helps us to see that we're not satisfied until we find something to fulfill these versions of our longings. We try to, have, try to fill them with money or accomplishment or vacation, and all those are neutral things. All those are good things, but only the divine can satisfy with divine joy, full and complete. And we see a picture of it here, that the man in his joy found what he was longing for. He was now consoled. The inconsolable was consoled. It was worth selling everything to find it. The English Puritan John Stalham describes the man in this parable, the men in these parables, as believers in Christ who have found this satisfying joy. He describes them this way. Listen to this. For joy, he parts with his sins, one another in absolute hatred of them, never to have to do them again. For joy, he parts with his gifts, so as they shall be new, new modeled and cast and have a new stamp of the mint and treasury of Christ's holiness. For joy of the riches of Christ's righteousness, he lets go his own. For joy of greater profits, sweeter pleasures, higher honors, and better friends, which come in the gospel pearl. For joy of inward spiritual privileges, he lets go confidence in outward. For joy of Christ, the root of all spiritual life, strength, active news, he renounces his own supposed sufficiency. For joy of the glory of free grace, he hates his own ends. For joy of eternal life, which began in the right knowledge of God and Christ, he gives up this temporal life. For joy, Christ alone can satisfy. So I ask you again, why are you here? As you think about that, let's look at some principles as we begin to conclude that we can glean from these parables. First, and we've mentioned some of this already, that Jesus is the focus of this parable. It's not the men. It's not even the parable of the treasure. It is Jesus. And we're quick to draw the parable to look at the parable to try to discern its meaning, but don't miss the fact that Jesus actually is the ideal man and the ideal merchant seeking an ideal treasure. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, emptied himself, came to the earth as a human, lived a perfect life, suffered the punishment for sin that we deserved on the cross, died, was buried, and rose again. He did this to give us his righteousness and to bring us into his kingdom, all for the glory of the Father, the greatest treasure. Some early Christians summarized the readings of the scriptures of this treasure seeker, Jesus Christ, in this way. And they said, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. Jesus sold all he had, bought the field, all of the world, to gain glory for his Father. The treasure is Christ in his kingdom. The pearl is Christ in his kingdom. And his sacrifice and substitution for us already paid them for us, so we can have them for free. Jesus is the greatest treasure seeker. Finding treasure, number two, is providential. That the man in the first parable found the treasure on accident, or that the merchant in the second parable found the pearl after great searching, does not mean that one is smarter or more clever than the other, or somehow closer to the kingdom than the other. The one that finds the treasure is due to the providential working of God. And this understanding in our own lives, that if we found the treasure, it's due to God's providential kindness, should bring assurance and comfort. If you found the treasure of Christ in his kingdom today, it's because God loves you and directed you to it. 
And if he directed you to it, he's not going to let you go. He's going to continue to lead you in paths of righteousness for his same sake. He's going to continue to finish what he started. He hasn't left you. He will walk with you to the very end. You didn't find it on your own. Providence or the idea of a providential finding is simply, as Calvin says, the belief that the ruler and governor of all things, the plans and intentions of men are so governed by God that they are born straight to their appointed end. God is driving the world. And lest this sounds somewhat fatalistic, Calvin helps when he says, when the world appears to be aimlessly tumbled about, the Lord is everywhere at work. Finding treasure is providential. That you and I found Christ owes to God's kindness in directing our paths. God is in control of the treasure. Number three, the treasure of spiritual mindedness. The treasure of spiritual mindedness. Sometimes we make the study of scripture or theology, especially in an academic setting, so complicated that oftentimes, if we're honest, we sit in our seats and we wonder after class or sometime in the hallway or in your dorm room, what, what is it I'm missing? What, what am I not seeing that others don't? They all seem to get it. And that might even lead us to question, what am I doing here? It's like we're in a museum and everyone's sort of looking at this priceless work of art, and I just see... Um, you know, a painting of a guy on a wall, but everyone else is so moved and they're crying and what's so fancy about this painting? <laughs> Sometimes that's how we feel when we're studying scripture and theology. We're not sure if we're getting it. The parables are not this way. They teach a lesson, but also the lesson about the importance of thinking spiritual things. The point is not to see how long you can stare at words on a page, or, but rather to cultivate the discipline of time spent in reading and reflection. We're not searching the scriptures for inner light or a feeling or insider knowledge. The Bible in itself, the plain reading of the Bible is sufficient to be understood. Rather, what we need to cultivate is what John Owen called spiritual mindedness. Owen says we can only be considered to be spiritually minded if we are delighted with the idea of thinking about God. True believers find great joy in thinking about God, which stirs them up to praise him. This is far more than just thinking about heaven. It's spending time in dedicated thinking. So if it's hard for you to think this way, what does it mean to be spiritual minded? Do I just sit in my room and just stare at the ceiling and, you know, think? Well, at some level, perhaps, and we could all do a little, with a little bit more of dedicated thinking and reflection in our lives, more than just driving along in a car or whatever, we, we would do better cultivating that discipline. But if it's hard for you to think of, of heaven, just listen to Owen again as a place to start. If you cannot think clearly about invisible things, dwell on this great truth. In heaven, you will be freed forever from the presence of sin. Go think about that. Spend time thinking about that. Cultivate that spiritual mindedness of that weird one truth. Further, John 17, 3 explains that eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ. To be spiritually minded or even heavenly minded is really just to think on Christ. Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Heaven is a World of Love, is a phenomenal sermon to take 10 weeks to read through, as well as the new book by the pastor, Annie Davis, on heaven. I commend both of those to you. Number four, the folly of worldliness. The folly of worldliness. If we're not treasuring Christ in his kingdom, then often we fall into the folly of worldliness. Worldliness, as Owen says, is a mortal disease. It will kill you. And it can only be cured by spiritual mindedness. 
Worldliness in our own day, the examples are obvious. When I say worldliness, you can think of what the world is doing out there. But worldliness lives in here as well. And sometimes it can be simply indulging in overthinking about good earthly things. You don't want to know how much I know about Major League Baseball. Uh, at what level? I know quite a bit. I spend a lot of time thinking about it. Um, and that can lead at times throughout the year, depending on what's going on, to a level of worldliness. But the burly bring it inside these walls. You can have a level of worldliness in even thinking about the Southern Baptist Convention or evangelical debates or denominational squabbles or whatever is going on out there. You do not need to know all that is going on. In fact, you've been given the blessing of coming here and studying to be freed from the responsibility of having to know all that is going on out there. You can have a level of worldliness and concern about the things even of the church, so much so that you're never even thinking about Christ and his kingdom. Folly of worldliness can lead, especially in academic settings, to vain speculations. And this is true for the study of theology and even biblical studies. You can go through whole semesters if you want and know all there is to know and study all there is to study and read all that there is to read and never think about Christ and his kingdom. You're just speculating vainly about things, but you're not actually connecting it to Christ. The, simple, the solution to worldliness is simple. Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the things in Matthew 6 will be given to you. As I seek to wrap up, I have a word here about treasuring Christ and his kingdom for the church. The importance of pondering and treasuring Christ for the sake of the church and for the sake of churches. Um, Spurgeon said that the church is Jesus's pearl of great price. It's what Jesus had in mind when he died. It was what the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12, 2. That joy includes the church. We treasure Christ not just for ourselves, but for the sake of the church. We do it to, to be able to communicate to people in the church. We do it to be able to strengthen churches. We do it to be able to contribute and to serve in local churches. It's not just about ourselves. We should also treasure Christ and his kingdom for the sake of the nations. We should treasure Christ also for those in the world who have, do not yet have this joy, especially for those who have never heard the name of Jesus. Muslims... Jewish people, atheists, Hindus, animistic people, they all need this treasure. They are all having this hunger, this divine longing for joy, and the answer is found in Christ. We should be working for the nations, as 2 Corinthians 1 talks about, for their joy, finding their joy. Often treasuring Christ and his kingdom means that we're to treasure him among the darkest places in the world where you may be the only one with the treasure so that others searching for treasure can find that peerless and priceless pearl. Finally, we should treasure Christ in his kingdom daily. It should be a daily discipline to cultivate. But don't mistake this for you should do more or do better. Okay, you got a list of things to do now. That's not the point of this parable. But rather, it flows, what we do daily should flow from a love and focus on our wonderful Savior and friend. Do the ideas of reading these parables given by our Lord himself to show him as the true giver of wisdom, does it motivate you to want to talk to Jesus more, to spend time with him more? He is greater than Solomon, and you have access to sit down and to read his words and to talk with him and pray to him. 
Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We should cultivate this discipline of treasuring Christ and his kingdom in every sermon we prepare. We should be listening for it in every sermon we hear. We should be thinking about it in how we read the Bible, focusing on the Bible and looking for Christ in the Bible, not just learning and memorizing and doing things like this. We should treasure Christ in all of our theological discussions. And when those discussions turn into debate, we should realize that the treasure is likely elsewhere and we should just let those debates go, especially if they're taking place not in the real world. We should treasure Christ's Christ in all of our choices. It should motivate us on what church we should join, how we should spend our weekends, where we should give our money. For those of you who aren't yet married, you should treasure Christ in thinking and praying for your future spouse, finding someone who treasures Christ as much, if not more than you. That is the most important thing. So in conclusion, I come back to my question, why are you here? Just a few weeks ago, um, uh, I attended the funeral of our own Dr. David McAlpin, a faculty member here who also was pastoring on the south side of Kansas City. And he passed away on Christmas Day, December 25th, after a long um, battle with, hard battle with cancer. When it became clear that he was in his final weeks, Dr. Allen uh, organized a time for many of us who knew Dr. McAlpin to go down there to visit with him. And often in ministry, you'll get this opportunity um, to know that you're going to see a person for the last time, um, likely. So we drove down there to his home. We reminisced with him. We made the most of the time. We prayed with him. We laughed with him. We told stories about one another and got him to laugh. And during that final time that we would see him on earth, I just sat there and marveled about how calm he was and how at peace he was. And what's more, how focused on Christ he was. It, it really is that simple. Treasuring Christ in his kingdom in such a way throughout life that when you come to the end of your days, even through a significant and painful trial, that Christ is there and you're focused on him. In many ways, that is the secret. And what's great is that it's a secret filled with hope. For today, Dr. McAlpin sees our friend and brother, the Lord Jesus, face to face. And there is no more cancer. And we look forward to that day when we can see him again. So I return to my question, why are you here? Answering that question professionally as a college student or vocationally as a graduate student is important, and you will answer it in time if you're not even able to do it now. So don't, don't worry about it. Let, let other people ask. Don't worry about answering it here. But answering that question in the ultimate sense is of utmost important. And a very good way to answer it is simply, why are you here? Well, something greater than Solomon is here. And he is my king and my greatest treasure and joy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this hour and the treasures that are hidden in your word for us to find. I pray that you would help us by the Holy Spirit to take these words and meditate on them, not by ourselves, but with Christ, and find joy there. In Jesus' name, amen.